0: because the name of our message today is the burning, unconsumed bush. So would you open up to Exodus chapter 3? We're going to try to cover a whole chapter this morning. So what I want to do is start out by reading the chapter. I'm going to read it really fast, but I think it's important that we read it. Let's look at chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. I wanted to explain that Jethro has two names, and some people get confused about it, because if you look at verse 18 of chapter 2, his name is Reuel. Why does he have two names? Well, Jethro, they say, they think is a title for the priest. He's a priest. Reuel, or however you pronounce it, would be his name name, his regular name that his mother gave him, his father gave him. So that's why he has two names. So Moses wasn't, didn't even have his own sheep. He didn't even have his own flock of sheep and goats. He kept his father-in-law's sheep. His father, uh, father-in-law was a priest of Midian, and Moses led the flock to where? The backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside. See, Moses talks to himself, too, just like some of us do, unless he was talking to a sheep. He said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And I can't help but think of this song. We are standing on holy ground. Moreover, he said, this is the Lord, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters; for I know their sorrows and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large meaning a large land unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Now, here's where Moses gets his commission. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people... It's the first time God ever called the Israelites my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Verse 11, and Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he, the Lord, said, certainly I will be with thee. Did you really think I was going to send you by yourself, Moses? He kind of botched it up the last time. (laughs) Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token or a sign unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. What mountain? The same mountain where he appeared to him in the burning bush, Mount Horeb. Or Sinai. I don't know if you knew that. Sinai was the same place where he saw the Lord in the burning bush. I talked to him. Verse 13. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, that The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, has sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done unto you. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and all the rest of the parasites, you know, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And, this is amazing, he tells him ahead of time, and they shall hearken to thy voice. Who? The elders of Israel will listen to him the second time. The Israelites will listen to Moses. And thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, unto Pharaoh. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go. We beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And here's what God tells them ahead of time also. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders. What are they? The plagues. Which I will do in the midst thereof, and after that he will let you go. And I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when you go, you shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor, and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. In other words, you've been laboring as slaves for years without any wage, without any pay, and I'm going to compensate you for that. <laughs> I'm going to give you so much, from, I'm going to put it in the heart of the Egyptians, that, that you're, literally Egypt is going to be spoiled of all her wealth. Isn't it amazing how God works? Same thing with Jochebed. Remember how she was paid wages to nurse her own son. Okay, so the first 40 years of Moses' life ended with good news and bad news. The good news was his renunciation of Egypt. He put it, it was put in his mind and heart to willingly forsake all the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt in order to identify with the afflictions of his own people. That was the good news. He basically gave up the world for the sake of Christ. The bad news was that Israel rejected him. The good news, his renunciation of Egypt. Bad news, Israel's rejection of him. His first official visit to his brethren and his subsequent attempt to alleviate their suffering and to be a peacemaker among them ended with his first exodus from Egypt. He left alone. No one accompanied him when he made his first exodus. So I really hope he enjoyed the solitude because he certainly would not be alone on his second exodus. <laughs> I don't think he'd ever have a moment of peace and quiet on, in his second exodus. So we could say that as he had hidden the murdered body of the Egyptian taskmaster in the sand, he himself was essentially buried in the sands of Midian, he went to Midian, that's a desert area. It's in Saudi Arabia today, part of Saudi Arabia. It's a lot of sand. So Moses was essentially buried in the sands of Midian for the next 40 years, presumably dead to the Israelites. They didn't think they'd ever see hide nor hair of Moses again. So are you thinking of Jesus? A lot like the Lord Jesus. Now, four decades, that's a big chunk of a person's life and so we know that a lot would have taken place in Moses's life during those 40 years as he dwelt with his new Gentile family tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law but he was only inspired by the Holy Holy Spirit to record a few events in those whole 40 years such as his marriage to one of the seven daughters of Jethro named Zipporah. He mentions that, and then he mentions the names of his two sons. He also mentions, and we saw this last time, that the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, had died, and the people of Israel, the Hebrews, were desperately crying out and groaning and you know, because of all their continual bondage in Egypt. One further piece of information that he gave to us was that God heard their cries and their groaning and he remembered his covenant. Now, God, of course, never forgets anything. So those terms are actually speaking of the fact that he was soon coming to intervene in the affairs of men for the sake of his covenant people. Israel was finally, it took her a long time, but she was finally ready For the divine midwife to deliver her from the long and painful contractions that she was now experiencing living in Egypt's once protective but now hostile womb. You know, there for a while with Joseph and the Pharaoh that was kind to Joseph and the Hebrews, that womb was protective, wasn't it, and safe place to be. But when the labor pains started, she needed to get out of there. And she finally realized it's time to leave Egypt. And Moses' time was not wasted. A lot of times people will think, well, I wasted, you know, that big part of my life. One good thing is that God can redeem the years the locusts have eaten. But if you look back on your life, sometimes you say, well, those years really weren't wasted. He was preparing me. I might not have known it, but he was preparing me for something later on. For example, I look back at my life and I um, had to go to Greek school after public school, and uh, three days a week, two hours after public school you know you get a lot of homework in school and then you got to have homework for greek school and i why do i have to learn greek i don't want to learn greek you know you have to talk to your mother-in-law one day in your native their native tongue so that's what it says in the big fat greek wedding how many of you have seen that movie the girl complains why do i have to take greek school so you can talk to your mother-in-law one day Well, I didn't marry a Greek, so that didn't pan out. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I needed to learn another dialect. (laughs) But um, I didn't like it. But then when I became a Christian and the New Testament is in Greek, oh, what an... See, God was not wasting that time for me, was he? No, not at all. It's wonderful when you look back like that. So Moses' time living as a nobody (laughs) in the Midian wilderness was not wasted. As with his 40 years living in Pharaoh's palace where he had gained very beneficial experience in law and government that would prepare him for his leadership role with God's people. So also his 40 years as a desert shepherd proved valuable. For one thing, it familiarized him with the region where he would later bring and lead the Hebrews for another 40 years. He became very familiar, well acquainted with the topography of the Sinai Peninsula and Midian. He spent 40 years there as a shepherd. He knew every every landmark, every waterhole, every trail, green pasture. He knew all about the weather patterns, the various dangers that you would encounter in that kind of environment. Also is that sheep don't talk very much unless they're ewes so Moses had a lot of quiet time with the Lord and that is always a positive positive way for a person to redeem their time wisely he had a lot of quiet time on the back of the desert Israel in Egypt was being prepared to desire the exodus if she wasn't in slavery she would have stayed there forever she liked the garlics and the leek and the onions you know that She would have enjoyed the comforts and, you know, when the first generation died out, those young people that had never been to Israel, they didn't care to go there. They would have stayed there forever if they weren't in bondage and finally cried out, we need to get out of here. So she's in Egypt preparing to desire the exodus by way of suffering while Moses is in Midian being prepared to lead The exodus by way of shepherding. You see how clever God is? He doesn't waste anything. Now, we know Moses had to have been disappointed with the way things turned out. He, you know, he had been confident that he was the chosen deliverer. Stephen told us that. He was very confident. And he was surprised that the Israelites didn't know that (laughs) because he knew it. And so we know he was disappointed. Uh, A lot of that was his own fault because he ran ahead of God. Some of it was the Israelites' fault because they rejected him. But he wasn't very happy. We know that because he named his first son kind of a depressing name. He says, I'm a stranger in a strange land. But even though he had first gone to the house of Israel to deliver her in a strange turn of events, it was the Gentile fold who accepted his deliverance effort and appreciated his deliverance of those seven sisters at the well. From the false shepherds. And they had actually even provided him with a Gentile bride. Are you thinking of Christ again? Because this is Old Testament Christology. And he's all over the place. Can't help but see him. And so he accepted his new life. With the Midianites. And for the past 40 years of Israel's extra sufferings. He had functioned as the protective good shepherd. Of his new Gentile family. And I'll throw this in. If you don't understand or don't follow me, don't worry about it. But this is for those of you who will. Two Gentile brides, one for Joseph, Asenath or whatever her name was, and Zipporah, Gentile bride for Moses. Those two Gentile brides were safely with their bridegroom, Joseph, and Moses, apart from when Israel was going through her tribulation and her suffering they were safe with the bridegroom you get it that is if you think it through a very strong support for a pre-tribulation rapture that the church because the gentile bride brides represent the church that the the church will be raptured before the seven years of tribulation so she is there separate from israel in her suffering so if you follow that it's exciting. I have a hundred other reasons for why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Really, I do. I wrote them in one of the books. So he accepted his new life and he got content with it, you know, over the years. From the palace to the pasture. That's from high to low. And if you think about it, that's exactly the opposite of Joseph. God's other chosen deliverer of his people. That's the reverse because he had gone from the pit where his brothers threw him in and then the prison where Potiphar's wife wound up putting him, basically. He went from the pit and the prison to the palace. So he went from low to high. Moses went from high to low. But, you know, it is often on the backside of the desert that the Lord takes his children to get them away from the distractions of Egypt. My husband took me out of the distractions of Egypt from Chicago. I was working, believe it or not, I was working in downtown Chicago, which is called the Loop on State Street, which is the center of the, the center of Chicago. And I was taking a train 2 hours each way to get to work. And then I meet my husband and move down to the back side of the desert. <laughs> Now, this place 43 years ago was different than it is today, yes, and he put me literally in the woods behind the tobacco fields, no family, nothing but 200 ducks and chickens and quail and pheasant and every kind of fowl creature you can imagine, and I didn't have any family, we weren't in church at the time, I didn't have children yet, and I was on the backside of the desert, but you know what? That's a good place to be because I had nothing else to do. And I started studying the Bible. Praise the Lord. (laughs) And been doing it ever since. I love the backside of the desert. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't go back to Egypt for anything. Besides, daffodils come up in February here on the backside of the (laughs) desert. You know, that's where you hear the still, small voice of God. Now, to the world, to the man of the world, He would look at Moses and say that he's a tragic figure at this stage of his life. He's 80 years old, and he's a shepherd, doesn't even have, like I said, his own flock. He's keeping his father-in-law's flock. He had lost all his position. He lost his power, his fame, his riches, and his authority. In fact, what he was doing was considered an abomination by the Egyptians. They looked down their noses at shepherds. But it is often in the humble work in hidden places that God's servants learned two very important lessons. Number one, the vanity of their own resources. He had tried to deliver Israel with his own, in his own strength. That, how that worked out for him? Not too good. When you try to do something, if you try to do a ministry in your own, you know, in your own strength, on your own, apart from the Lord, how's it go? Not too well. You learn the vanity of your own resources. And secondly, your utter dependence on God, because apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. So with the opening of Exodus chapter three, we find Moses tending to his father-in-law's flocks as he had done for the past 14,440 days. (laughs) That's how many days in 40 years. And he was near to a place where he, that he would later name. Now, he didn't write Exodus as he was going through this. He wrote it later as he's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That's when he writes the books of the Pentateuch. So later on, he came to call this place where he first met the Lord. Now, up to this point, he has never had a revelation from God. First time, he's 80 years old. And he came to call that place where he met the Lord in the burning bush, the mountain of God because of the fact that 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 is where he met the Lord of the burning bush, and that is also where he later received the law and the pattern for the tabernacle. Another name for Horeb is Mount Sinai. Moses associated the mountain of God, Sinai, with Horeb. And in the Bible, oftentimes those two terms are used interchangeably, Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, but actually there is a distinction. Horeb actually describes the mountain range, the whole range. Horeb means desert or desolation, and that's very appropriate for that area because it is very desolate. It is like a desert. Horeb speaks of the whole mountain range, whereas Sinai speaks of one particular mountain peak within that mountain range. well so he's there in the middle of mundane shepherding just like every other day of the past 40 years and he's tending to the sheep when suddenly something catches his eye after four decades now Moses has become very very familiar with everything that the flora and fauna and the topography and the nature of that environment had to offer so he knew that this was definitely something new. He thought he had seen it all, but this was something new. So he turned aside to see what he called this great sight. That's in verse 3. What was this great sight? Well, it was a, like a bramble bush, a bush, a regular desert bush, and it was on fire, which in itself is not that unusual because they, they would burn you know, on occasion in that hot, dry desert. But this burning bush was not being consumed. And that was unique. If you saw a fire and nothing was being burned, you know that's different, that's unique. And as he drew nearer in order to investigate why none of the leaves were curling, why the branches weren't being charred, why there was no smoke, Or even the smell of smoke? What's that remind you of? Three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace, not even the smell of smoke? It doesn't say that, but I'm assuming that if there's no ashes, there's no smoke, nothing is burning, there isn't going to be a smell of smoke. So he's going to investigate this, and suddenly, I'm surprised he didn't have an AFib attack, because all of a sudden, out of the midst of the bush, he hears his name, Moses, Moses. And he knew it didn't come from any of the sheep or the goats. Now, what does it mean when God says your name twice? Who else did he do that to? Can you think of somebody? Abraham, Abraham. Peter, Peter. Martha, Martha. Saul, Saul. Road to Damascus. When God says your name twice, you know what? Listen up. Or if he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, listen up. What he's about to say and do is important. That was in verse 4. If you go back to verse 2, Moses has already informed his readers the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of the midst of the bush. Then, as we continue through the rest of the narrative we also find that the one in the midst of the bush who continues to speak to Moses is the Lord. It's all in capitals in your Bible. Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals. That is the name Yahweh. And he is God. He is called God, the Lord and God. God is the name Elohim, which means that the angel of the Lord here is not some high-ranking, created, messenger, angel he is the lord yahweh god elohim the angel of the lord is who the pre-incarnate eternal son of god frequently he is called the angel of the lord in the old testament when he appeared unto men before he was incarnated before he became man dwelt in flesh it's called the angel of the lord in theology. An appearance of the eternal son of God is called, in the Old Testament, a theophany. It comes from two Greek words, and here's where my Greek school comes in so handy. Theos, which means God, and phineo, which means to appear. So it's an appearance of God, a theophany. No Old Testament figure was more privileged with more God-encounters, theophanies, Christophanies, than who? Moses, but he didn't start till he was 80. But he spent more time one-on-one, face-to-face with God up there on Sinai. He went up there twice, 40 days, 40 nights, than Moses. Isn't, wasn't he privileged? So don't think that if you're an octogenarian, your life is about over. It might just be beginning, right? <laughs> Listen for your name twice. By the way, the ultimate theophany, ultimate theophany was when Christ was incarnated and became God with us, Emmanuel. The only Godhead member ever visible to man is Christ. You understand that? The Holy Spirit is a spirit. You cannot see him. No man has ever seen God the Father, nor ever will. The only member of the Godhead who has manifested and will manifest himself to man is God the Son, and he is the one who appeared and spoke to Moses from the burning bush to commission him to deliver Israel from her bondage because Moses and the Exodus were to serve as a prophetic picture of his own redemptive work for those in bondage in Egypt, in this world, which is everyone, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So this is Christ giving him a great commission. There's a lot of similarity between the commission to Moses, and the Great Commission to us as the church. Yahweh, now this would shock a lot of people, but it's true. Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. I want you to flip over real quickly to Isaiah forty three eleven. This is a very important verse, and you miss it in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's beautiful. Isaiah forty three eleven. It says there, I, this is the Lord speaking, the Lord God, He says, I, even I, am the Lord. Now notice that's all in capitals. That means I, even I, am Yahweh. And beside me, there is no Savior. And you know what that word is? Yeshua, Jesus. I am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Yeshua. Yahweh of the Old Testament is Yeshua of the New Testament. Well, the quick-acting octogenarian responded to the double call of his name with immediate appropriateness. If you do hear your name called out twice from heaven above, here's what you are to say. Here am I. (laughs) And you should go a step further like Saul did. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? But he appropriately said, here am I. So it may have, now listen, because this took me 10 minutes to write this sentence. It may have appeared... That Moses was a forgotten, foreign fugitive from Pharaoh, feeding his father's flock on the far side of Forlornville, <laughs> but God knew exactly who he was. Does the good shepherd know his sheep by name? You think Moses had a name for every sheep and goat? But bet he did. The Lord knows your name. He knew Moses' name. He not only knew who he was, but he knew where he was. Uh, You can't hide from God on the backside of the desert, Moses. Buried in the sands of Midian. I know exactly where you are. And when it's time, I know where to find you. An important truth concerning our spiritual walk with the Lord is that his call for service will oftentimes come when you least expect it. You know, when you're just going about your daily mundane life and all of a sudden he calls your name. I was vacuuming my family room, when all of a sudden the phone rang. Catherine, would you like to go to a Bible study in Fayetteville? Seventy-five miles each way from my house. Oh, thanks, that's nice, but no thanks. Go back to vacuuming. Catherine, Catherine. I called her back, and I said, okay, that's where it all began. And the first time I walked in that Bible study Bible study fellowship in Fayetteville and there were probably 200 women in that room singing out praises to the Lord I heard as distinctly as if it was a voice Catherine Catherine this is what I have for you one day I I will never doubt it never forget it I knew and (laughs) that day I'm a young young girl new in the Lord three preschoolers with me And I go to the teaching leader and I said, I'm going to do this one day. And she must have looked at me like, (laughs) but I was so positive about it. You know, you never know when the Lord is, it could be on a day like this, a rainy day. And he calls you to a ministry. He knows when the timing is right and when your life circumstances are right. And it's all in his timing. Our only response is to say, here am I, what would you have me to do? You may not know you're ready either. Because I certainly wasn't quite ready then. It took a few years before this all began. But he knows. He knew he had been preparing me all those years, right? Sending me to that dumb Greek school and everything. (laughs) (laughs) The Lord was going to commission Moses for his deliverance work of Israel. But not until he had his undivided attention. Uh, And I think he got it, don't you? (laughs) A burning bush that wouldn't consume. And then this booming voice out. of He got Moses' undivided attention. God's word is not going to penetrate our hearts. As it has the power to do. And it's not going to pull us to service for him in the dynamic way that it can. If we only glance at it now and then. You know, if Moses had just stood there very fascinated by the sight and said, oh, that's interesting, and then walked away, it would have changed nothing, would it? We have to get alone with God. We have to turn aside to see this great sight here. That's why I do give you homework questions, so that you get into the word and you get all the insight yourself, and then the word comes alive for you. That's what happened with Moses. Um he he when he received insight about god from the lord himself regarding his name regarding his holiness his knowledge what he knew about what was going on you know with his people in egypt His might, his power, his promises, and his plans. When Moses got that great insight from the Lord and from his word, then everything sparked to life in him. And that's why he went forth from Sinai in God's power, not his own strength, in God's power to fulfill the purpose for which he was created. And the purpose for which we are all created is to what? Glorify God to serve him. So the angel of the the thing... All right, now I'm going to end with a preposition, so forgive me, you English majors. <laughs> uh, the thing the angel of the Lord appeared in was what? Yes, a bush. It wasn't a trick question. <laughs> the angel of the Lord appeared in a bush. Now, the Hebrew word for that bush is sena, S-E-N-E-H, it is um, a small, thorny species of acacia bush that still grows in that same area today. And it is called a senna, still to this day. The word senna, if you h- listen to it, is very similar to Sinai, isn't it? Senna, Sinai. Sinai means shining or Shiny and it is very possible that both the bush the sanah bush and the mountain sinai got their names because of the lord's shiny glowing presence in both of them the bush and remember when he come, comes down on sinai is a fire and a cloud and a fire in deuteronomy now here's another place i would like you to turn to deuteronomy 33:16 deuteronomy 33:16 Moses, again, talks about his burning bush episode. And as he is writing about that, he speaks of Deuteronomy 33, 16. He speaks about the goodwill of him, the Lord, that dwelt in the bush. All right. What is fascinating about that verse is that the Hebrew word, well, number one, the Hebrew word for bush is senna. Same, same word that we're talking about. But the Hebrew word for dwelt is shakan or shekine. Shekinah. That's where we get the word shekinah. The shekinah glory of God is God's glory dwelling with man. So that verse says the goodwill of Yahweh, him, that shekinahed in the sinna. The Shekinah glory of God's presence is what appeared as the flame of fire in the burning bush. It was the Shekinah glory of God that was burning the bush, but not consuming the bush. Now, because the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, was in the midst of the same bush, this translates to mean, you know, if you ever took logic, A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C. This means that he, the angel of the Lord Christ, is the Shekinah, the dwelling glory of God. It was always Christ who dwelt, who shekined with man. You know? Always. He was, it was Christ who dwelt or shakaned with Israel in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what? Fire by night, leading her and guiding her. It was the Shekinah glory of Christ, Christ himself, the pre incarnate Christ, who dwelt, came down and dwelt above the Holy of Holies um, in the tabernacle. It was Christ who descended on Mount Sinai in fire, as the dwelling glory of God himself. So the divine person who appeared and spoke to Moses from the midst of the burning bush was the angel of the Lord, who is also the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who is the dwelling Shekinah glory of God, who is Yahweh, who is God Elohim, and who is also the next name we are given, I am that I am. Now, God does nothing capriciously without a purpose. He doesn't. He always has a plan. He always has a reason and a purpose for everything. So he, we we think this is the way we look at the Bible. So why did he choose a small thorny bramble bush as his throne we could say is throne for his first appearance to Moses, who is a very important, significant type of Christ. Why, why would he pick this little thorn bush? The thorn bush is symbolically comparable to the Edenic garden where God shekined with man. Where God, you know who walked in the cool of the, the day with Adam and Eve? Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, we could say the thorn bush too is compar- significantly comparable to the Holy of Holies of the Jewish tabernacle. Where God came down and dwelt with man in kind of glory. And with the seven golden candlesticks of Revelation chapter 1. You know those seven golden candlesticks that represent the church? Who is standing in the midst of them? Christ. Is he in the midst of the church? Yes. So all these picture the same idea. Christ dwelling with man. The senna bush is known for its thorns. It's sharp, prickly. Now, the biblical law of first mention That's a law that tells us whenever a word is first used in the Bible, that gives you an idea for its meaning throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay, where are thorns first mentioned in the Bible? Part of the curse, right? Yeah, remember, man, you know, you fell, so you're going to have to really work the land hard, and there's going to be weeds and dandelions and thorns and thistles. All right, that's the first time we hear about thorns. So they symbolize the curse and the pain of sin. At the time of Moses, were the Israelites groaning and complaining and suffering because of sin? Their sin, the Egyptians' sin, yes, basically because we live in a sin-cursed world. So they're groaning and complaining and they're finally crying out to God for help. What else do thorns remind you of exactly exactly the crown of thorns on the head of the savior who came to deliver us from the curse and the pain of sin now here's something i want you to think about and put this away i don't know if you ever thought about this before but you know all well the the old Testament there was one exception But other than that one exception, all the Old Testament sacrifices, you know, they would take the animal and they would put it on the altar and they would burn it. All the Old Testament sacrifices were consumed, weren't they? They were consumed by fire. Why? Because they were not sufficient to take away sins forever. They only temporarily covered sin. They didn't purpose permanently cleanse sins. So they were consumed by the fire. Christ literally became the curse of sin for you and I. He took upon himself the full cup of God's wrath against every sin of every person who has ever lived, past, present, and future. The eternal one. I am that I am, crowned with thorns, allowed himself to be engulfed in an eternity of the righteous flames of holy judgment against sins, against sin. But you know what? Those flames of justice, of holy justice, did not consume him, did they? No, it is impossible for death to hold the prince of life. He was consumed in flames on that cross. But, I mean, he was engulfed in them. He was burning, but it didn't consume him. Three days later, what happened? He rose from the dead. The burning bush is a symbol of the deliverance work of the Savior on the cross. And because of that, the burning bush also pictures those who have placed their trust in his salvation work on the cross. On their behalf, you and I, I hope everyone in this room is included, that burning bush symbolizes us. It's because of the Lord's presence in the midst of us, when we're saved, that happens, he indwells us, that we are not consumed by the just judgment of holy God, you know? When you die, you're not consumed, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So truly the glory of the gospel was set forth in the imagery of the burning bush. You know how we saw the gospel at Moriah when Abraham was going to uh, offer Isaac? Was, that's what we call the gospel of Moriah. And, you know, in Genesis, I got to thinking about there was a main mount there in Genesis, and it was Moriah, which later is Mount Zion, you know, Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. In Exodus, the main mountain is Sinai, Horeb, Sinai. But the gospel is there at the burning bush because in next week's, or two weeks from now, the lesson we're going to look at some miracles that God allows Moses to perform. And one has to do with his rod becoming what? A serpent. What's that remind you of? The other one, miracle, he puts his hand into his robe and pulls it out, and it's full of leprosy. What is leprosy a picture of in the Bible? Sin. Sin. Puts it back in, and it comes out clean. And then he doesn't perform this miracle, but he tells them about it. When you go to Egypt, you're going to turn the Nile to what? Blood. There you've got it. Thorns, serpent, leprosy, blood. The gospel, isn't it? Well, the the bush was not only thorny, it was also small. Not a very big bush at all. Just small little thing, kind of like a tumbleweed size, I suppose. Do you know that the Lord's glory shines brightest in the nobodies of this world? The weak and the foolish who confound the mighty and the strong. Aren't you glad for that? He, and that, why is that? Because then he gets the glory, doesn't he? When he uses the little nobodies and... And they, they shine for, forth for him. And he gets the glory. Because it's not of us. We're weak and foolish. He could have chosen a mighty oak tree, couldn't he? He could have. Uh, he could have used someone other than an 80-year-old shepherd <laughs> to display his mighty powers to deliver Israel. You know, why didn't he use Moses when he was in the prime of his life, looking like Charlton Eston? Why did he wait till he was 80 years old? And why not choose a larger mightier nation than Israel to bless with his covenant promises and his ever watchful presence and his incarnate presence what country what nation did he go to in his carnation when he became man United States of America great and mighty United States of America did he go to Russia did he go to the big countries of the world puny little Israel That's the size of New Jersey on the map. He could have chosen big things, but he didn't. He chose the little things uh, because his glory shines brighter in the little things. Now, although the small thorny burning bramble bush pictures other truths, as I just mentioned, in this particular setting, this burning but not consumed bush primarily symbolizes the nation of Israel. The pre-incarnate Lord was in Israel's midst then. She didn't know it, but he was watching. He saw everything she was going through. He was also in her midst throughout her wilderness journeys. He was in her midst at Mount Sinai. He was in her midst above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. And as he one day. Was in her midst. When he manifested himself to her. In the flesh. Right? Moses was being summoned here. This is his commission. To return to his people. To deliver them from their afflictions. In the furnace of Egypt. She had been there. For years. Burning. Under her bondage. And yet. She was not consumed, no matter how many pharaohs came along, and even stoked the fire seven times hotter to get her to turn to ashes. Throw the babies to the crocodile-infested Nile River. You know who, who stoked the fire seven times hotter? Nebuchadnezzar when he threw in Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, right? And no matter how the pharaohs tried to to, tried to burn her up, she wasn't consumed. What did she do? She kept multiplying. <laughs> Israel is small, seemingly insignificant in the world today. Um, she's like the small senna bush in the midst of a huge, hostile, dry, and thirsty desert. Pharaohs, and kings, and nations, and inquisitions, and pogroms, and holocausts, and Islamic extremists, and many other anti-Semitic forces which are growing again today, even within the United States, with Muslim representatives to our (laughs) Congress, and everywhere anti-Semitism is on the rise. All these, these forces have blazed fires of persecution on this small, seemingly trivial nation ever since her conception. However, she cannot be consumed. She cannot be consumed. God says, I have graven her upon the palms of my hands. Isaiah forty nine sixteen. So who has to... Be consumed before Israel is consumed. God. Is that going to happen? No. No. The reason the Jewish people are not consumed. Although they have spent thousands of years in the fiery furnace. Pictured by those three Hebrew boys. Is because the son of God. Is in the midst of the fire with her. Remember when King Nebuchadnezzar stoked up that fire seven times and he threw the three boys in there and then he comes and he looks down and he says, wait a minute. (laughs) Didn't I throw three in there? There's four. And one is like unto the son of man. Guess what? It was the son of man. (laughs) Israel has been, speaking of thorns, Israel has been a thorn in the flesh to the prince of this world Satan for a long time. He hates israel he hates the jewish people why he hates us too (laughs) the church why because of the one in her midst and it because of the one in our midst ironically she doesn't even acknowledge him she doesn't even acknowledge the one in her midst but satan knows better than her and he hates her because of it he hates her because of his relentless attacks to consume her that they always fail every time. You know, even the Pharaoh's daughter rescued Moses and then uh, God spoke to Joseph in a dream and, you know, Herod wasn't successful. Over and over again, he always fails in his attempt to consume Israel and to cut off the messianic line. And he always will fail. You know, at Armageddon, he's going to try one last time with all the world against puny little Israel. And is he going to succeed? Nope, nope the son of man is going to come down with just word of his lip it's the end of him yeah glory be the existence of israel today as moses said of the burning bush is a great sight it's one of the greatest proofs of the reality of god you know that and the truth of scripture frederick the great of prussia once, once challenged, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, <laughs> a Moravian Christian, and the King of Prussia, Prussia said, uh, "Defend the Bible for me. You believe in the Bible? Defend it." And Zinzendorf did it with two words. You know what they were? The Jew. Absolutely. There's no. There is no natural explanation. For the continuation of the Jewish people, that they have not been amalgamated, intermarried, you know. Like, do you find any parasites around anymore? <laughs> yeah, don't answer that one. <laughs> Hivites or Jebusites, or Canaanites, but there are Hebrewites, and they're back in their land, and they're speaking Hebrew, a dead language that was once dead. It's a resurrection. It is a resurrection that Israel is back in the land. So there's no natural explanation for the continuous persecution of this people and yet the continual preservation of this people. There's no natural explanation because it's God's doing. A sad truth, however, about Israel, pictured by the thorny bush, is that thorns are sharp and they are short. And they are branches, they're actually aborted branches. Thorns would have, if developed properly, they would have produced longer branches and leaves and fruit. Israel's spiritual history has been one in which her fruit-bearing capacity has aborted, has been aborted, because of her repetitious rejection of God's deliverers, didn't they, de- they reject Joseph and didn't they reject Moses and the prophets? And even when He sent His own Son, they rejected Him. She could have borne much fruit, right? But instead, she's got she's full of thorns. She has not come to her full capacity. So much of her history has found her under the refining, chastening flames of God's judgment for her disbelief. You know, a lot of it is Satan's persecution, but also she's under God's chastening for disbelieving. And yet she is not consumed because God is the covenant-keeping God, isn't he? As he reminded Moses from the burning bush, if God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. He's not finished with Israel. Well, as Moses approached a great sight to take a closer look, the Lord spoke a command to him. He said, draw not nither. Don't come any closer, Moses. And that was immediately followed by a second command. What was it? Take off your shoes. Put off your shoes from your feet for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. That's the first use of the word holy in the Bible right here. It's the the Hebrew word Kadesh, uh, uh, Kodesh. I think it's where kosher comes from. The way it looks, Um, it means sacred, dedicated, hallowed, separate, holy. The holiness of God is such that He is absolutely separate from everything impure. There was nothing inherently holy about the ground beneath that bush, right? Just regular ground, nothing holy about the ground. But it was sacred because of God's presence there. Just like this room we're in, or this whole church here, there's nothing holy about those, what do you call those things up there? (laughs) Heat vents? (laughs) Or the glass windows, or the walls, or the cement floor, Nothing holy about the stuff, right? What makes this room separate and and sanctified and holy? The presence of God's people in the midst of whom he dwells. Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. This room is holy because of the presence of God amongst us. Also, the putting off of one's shoes speaks of removing all defilement, Before approaching a holy God it speaks of reverence and awe that sinful man is to show to a holy God did you know this did you know that the priests as they served God in the temple served God barefoot interesting isn't it because of this put off your shoes Uh, this is just a personal peeve of mine So if you don't agree with me, fine, I'm entitled to my opinion, but I do believe that there is far too much of a casual attitude toward the Lord today. My young people probably wouldn't agree with me, but I just, I mean, I I dress up for the Lord. I do. I dress up because he is worthy for me to look my best when I come into his presence to teach his holy word. "Give (coughs) Give your best to the master. Absolutely. I think today the awe, the reverence, the trembling is definitely lacking. King Solomon said this: He said, Don't be hasty and rash in your approach to God, tread softly. Well, Stephen, in his powerful sermon of Acts chapter 7, purposely mentioned this part of the burning bush episode. He purposely mentioned the holy ground part in order to make a powerful point to the religious rulers of Israel, the Sanhedrin council. You know, those guys, those chief priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and the rest of them were so obsessed with pride over the land, and over their holy city of Jerusalem, and their temple. They were so proud about that, that they looked down their long, prejudiced, pious noses at anyone, especially Gentiles, and even their fellow Jews who came from outside of the land. They called them Hellenistic Jews, Jews of the Diaspora. Oh, you're one of those Jews. You weren't born in the land. You know, you weren't born in Jerusalem like They just had all these issues going on. So Stephen is pointing out to them, and he's just brilliant the way that he does this, but he points out, he reminds them from their own history that they they all began with the appearance of the God of glory to a Gentile named Abram living in Mesopotamia, of all places. <laughs> and then... He continued his presence, God did, with all the patriarchs, Joseph and the patriarchs. Where? In Egypt. In Egypt. Most of the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, were buried where? In Egypt. They carried his bones back to the land, but. And then he talks about this stunning proclamation that God made to Moses that the backside of the Midian desert was holy ground. Couldn't those knuckleheads understand <laughs> that we, the place that is holy is where God meets with his people wherever it is on this planet or outside of this planet. When God meets with his people that or where God is, that's what makes it holy. And furthermore, he pointed out he couldn't stop himself. That's why they stoned him to death. But he also went on to, say, to remind them that some of the greatest miracles God ever performed were performed in Egypt. You know, the plagues. Or they were performed at the Red Sea. Or in the wilderness wanderings of present-day Saudi Arabia, the manna from heaven and all the miracles in the wilderness, their shoes never wearing out. And where else? How about Babylon? Daniel in the lion's den, the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. A lot of the greatest miracles took place outside the land. Well, after Moses removed his shoes, the Lord identified himself. He said, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He wanted Moses to know. Now, this is his first time ever speaking. Moses never had a dream like Joseph at 17. He never had any direct revelation from God. He heard about God through his mom and his dad, but he never had a direct revelation. So God is telling him, I'm not some new and different God. (laughs) I'm the same one that you've heard about, you know, God of your forefathers, and I'm not here to reveal some new plan to you. I'm going to continue to fill the same covenant plan." Revealed to the patriarchs. Now, think of this. Although the patriarchs were all dead, right? Do you know Joseph died 70 years before Moses was born? 70 years between the death of Joseph and the birth of Moses. All the patriarchs were dead by now. And yet the Lord said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of those men, which would be correct, if there was no afterlife. Right? If I if I'm dead, God would and there is no afterlife, God would say, I was Catherine's God. But if he says, I am Catherine's God, and she's not here anymore, that means Catherine is still living somewhere. You following me? And this is what Jesus used. Now, who actually said those words? Jesus. He's the angel of the Lord, right, in the midst of the bush speaking to Moses. So Jesus, during his own public ministry on earth, used this burning bush episode and his own pre-incarnate statement of Exodus 3.6 to refute some Sadducees. Now, why were the Sadducees sad, you see? Right, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. You'd be sad, too. And so they approach him, you know, they think they're so smart, and they're going to outwit Jesus. So they approach him with this trick question, with a hypothetical situation about a woman who had seven husbands in this life. You know, if I was number seven, I really don't think I'd eat her breakfast food, do you? Anyhow, so she's got seven husbands, and whose husband is she gonna, Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Ha, 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 we, tr- we tricked you. You see how foolish an afterlife is? And you know what he used to prove them wrong? Their own scripture. By the way, the Sadducees only thought the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, were God-inspired. So he goes right to the book of Exodus, and he shows them that from their own scripture that God said, he said, I am the God of the patriarchs who were dead because God, he said, is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Matthew 23, 32. He demonstrated that to them by using the present tense in his relationship with the departed patriarchs. Wasn't that brilliant of him? Of course it was brilliant of him. He's the one who knows, he knows, he said it. <laughs> and he knows there is an afterlife. Why did he come to die? So we could live eternally. Well, what began as a curiosity, you know, when he turned aside to see this strange light, then quickly turned to fear. Moses, we are told, hid his face in reverential awe. Stephen says that Moses trembled and durst not behold the blazing glory of the one before him. That trembling of Moses, that was a good indicator of the right condition of his heart. You see, he was realizing his own unworthiness. In the presence of awesome, holy, holy, holy God. That is the right response when approaching God. So what he heard next was comforting to his trembling heart. (laughs) Hiding, he's hiding there. You know, and another time he asked if he can see God face to face. God only lets him see what? The backside. Um, But what he hears next is that holy God tells him, indicates to him that he's also personal. A personal God and a compassionate God. He told Moses that he had seen the affliction and the oppression of his people. He heard their cries. He felt their sorrows. He wasn't, he isn't some distant, impersonal God. He's not removed from the sufferings of, of mankind. In fact, his hidden hand had been providentially working to preserve his people, right? And now, remember that promise he gave to Abraham way back in chapter 15 of Genesis that your people will suffer for 400 years and then I will deliver them and take them out and smite the Egyptians. Well, the time was ripe. It's all in his timing. It was now time for his intervention. He was going to come, take them out of Egypt, and take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. Then he receives his commission, verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people. That's the first time he ever uses that term for his people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He didn't explain the phenomenon. Don't you think Moses would have liked to have said, how are you doing this? I don't get it. How can you keep burning and not consuming? He doesn't explain that. And he doesn't tell him why Israel hasn't heard from him in so long. I'm sure every Hebrew wondered, why have we not heard from God? Silence in heaven for a long, long time. Instead, with a simple double call of Moses' name, that long, long silence from heaven was ended. It was broken. The same God who spoke the universe into existence began to speak to Moses. And it wasn't because Moses had finally figured God out. Or it wasn't because Moses had been looking for God behind every rock and in every cranny and crevice in the mountain, right? It was because God came to where Moses was, hiding, essentially, and called his name, just as he did with Adam. Where art thou, Adam? You can't hide from me. Moses' reaction to hearing his commission from God. Now, he says, you know, God says, you're going to go back to Egypt. You're going to bring your people out. Take them to the land of milk and honey. And you know what Moses' reaction is? Who, me? (laughs) That really? you got to be kidding. I'm 80 years old. After having failed at his first attempt to deliver Israel, he wasn't really expecting a second chance, do you think? Uh-uh, not at this stage. Uh, so he asks, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Previously, he had assumed a, an authority that God hadn't given him yet. So this question reflects a more mature caution. He's, he's understood his own unworthiness, hasn't he? And that he is a little bramble bush. <laughs> Nobody. And the Lord's response, I, I love it. He says, certainly I will be with thee. Like I said before, you really think I'm going to send you there by yourself, Moses? Of course I'm going to go with you. That was intended to get Moses' focus on God and not on himself. Like, who me? You think I can do that? I can't do that. I can't speak publicly. I can't do that. I'm too scared. I stutter. I'm going to look at all his excuses next time. But he's to get his eyes off of himself and onto God. Moses' authority would come from who? His strength and his power and everything would come from God. And God then gave him a a sign, a token. And this would come, this is interesting, because it comes after he steps out in faith and obeys. He says, here's your token, here's your sign, Moses. You will meet with me and all the Israelites at this very same mountain to worship me and did that happen and that was the sign Moses just had to obey trust and obey then he then he uh Moses goes on and he says well what am I gonna say to the Israelites when they ask me you know I don't have any proof that I actually spoke to you from a burning bush who's gonna believe that you know And how am I going to prove to them that you really talk to me? They're going to ask me, what is your name? So what should I say? The name by which God chooses to identify himself here captures the essence of his being. His other names capture his characteristics, like the God who sees or the God who hears or the all-sufficient God. This name captures the very essence of his being. So he tells Moses his name. And what is it? I am that I am. And he is to tell the children of Israel, I am sent me. His answer, the Lord's answer, highlights his uniqueness. He alone is God. Now the Hebrews had been living a long time In lands that had many gods and goddesses. Think of Abraham out of Ur. They worshipped all kinds of idols and gods. And then in Haran, Mesopotamia, where Jacob spent all those years. And in Canaan and in Egypt. Many, many, many gods. So it was necessary for God to assert his uniqueness. He is not just one of many gods. He is not even just the tribal God of the Hebrew people. He is the one and only true God. There are no other gods. Any other God with a little g is the figment of man's imagination or a lie of Satan. There is only one God. There's a verse in the scripture someone showed me yesterday where God says, I'm the only one. Kind of look around and never saw anyone else. (laughs) It's really humorous. I can't remember where it was, but... Um, so he is the God who is he is the God who is in other words he is the God who exists he is self existent that's a theological term meaning that he exists apart from any dependence on anything or anyone he is the creator who himself was never created now wrap your mind around that one he never had a beginning Never had a beginning. He needs no help to exist. He needs no help to accomplish his will. Nothing can prevent his will from being accomplished. I am that I am also speaks of his immutable person, his unchangeableness. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? He does not change. The burning, not-consumed bush was a living parable full of meaning. It was a message to Israel that she was being purified in the fires of affliction. For many of her people, sadly, had turned to the gods of Egypt over the years. But that purification, being in that fire, was to prepare her for God's blessings. She would be blessed, and she would not be consumed Only because, not because of her, but only because of God being the great I am, who keeps his promises. He gave unconditional promises in the Abrahamic covenant, and being the same yesterday, today, and forever, he would fulfill them. No matter what she did, right? He would fulfill them. So Moses could return to Egypt, gather together the elders, tell them that the God of the patriarchs was going to deliver them from their bondage in Egypt. And amazingly, they would hearken unto his voice. Second time around, they would listen to him. And then they would go before the king and ask him for a three-day uh, Leave of absence to go into the wilderness in order to worship their God. Then in verses 19 to 22, I'm almost done. The Lord presented three prophecies. He said, the request that you make to the king will be denied. He will not let you go. And then he says, it will only be my by my great compulsion through the wonders and I'm going to show them and pour out on them in the plagues that finally the king will let you go. So you see, Moses knows all this ahead of time, doesn't he? He knows this ahead of time. Third, he says, for all of their years of wages toil, they're going to not leave Egypt poor. They're going to leave Egypt poor. Egypt will be poor because all the riches will be given to them. You know, I'm going to close with this. At one point in his public ministry, the Lord Jesus shocked the religious rulers by declaring, he was always shocking them, I think he enjoyed shocking them. (laughs) But one time he shocked them by talking about his pre-existence to Abraham. Remember that? He said to them, "Uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, they knew immediately what he was claiming. You know, people today are dumb. They say Jesus never claimed to be God he did all over the place and the Jews knew it why do you think they killed him for blaspheming and saying he was God when he said I am they knew he was speaking about the God of the burning bush I am that I am so they took up stones to do what to kill him and also during his public ministry he went out of his way to make in the book of gospel of John seven I am claims to himself He said, and he purposely did this to echo Exodus 3.14, I am that I am, and reveal to the Jewish people who he was. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Then the resurrected Christ. That was during his earthly ministry. The resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ in the book of Revelation spoke another seven I am claims about himself. I am alpha and omega. I am the beginning and the ending. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am he which searches the reins and the hearts. I can read your heart. I am the root and offspring of David, and I am the bright and morning star. But personally, my very favorite I am statement ever made by Jesus occurred when he went forth to meet that large group of men, there was a band of Roman soldiers. You know what a band was? 600. Hard to believe. But 600 Roman soldiers with the Sanhedrin council members, the temple guard, and leading them all was Judas. And they go to Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, okay? Now, Jesus knows. Who he is. All right? You got that? He's not just a prophet. Not just a man. He knows who he is. He is the creator. The I am of the universe. The self-existent eternal one. So of course. He goes forth in authority. To meet them as they. He knew they were coming. And he goes forth to meet them. And he says whom seek ye? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what he says? I am. That he is not in the original manuscript. He said, I am. And what's the next thing that happened? Boom. They had no idea what happened. But well, next thing, all those guys are not on their stomachs, on their knees in front of him. They're on their backsides like turtles. I mean, like dominoes. They all fell backward, it says, in front of him. Is that not the power of the great I am? I I just, I love that. I would have loved to have been on the road to Emmaus, but I would have loved to see those guys all fall over like that. (laughs) I want to close with a poem I wrote called The Burning Bush. I'm just a small and thorny bush, no great and mighty tree, yet God in his abundant grace decided he'd use me. On the backside of Mount Sinai, The Lord God spoke through me. He told his servant Moses to set his people free. In his mighty sovereign plan, God shined by me his light. Though I am weak and foolish, his strength became my might. His blazing glory filled each branch. His power through me surged. The deadness of my former life, his fire divinely purged. How wonderful it is to know God delights to use the weak. His glory does much brighter shine through vessels small and meek. I'm glad to be a bramble bush and not a big proud tree. For God in his abundant grace burned bright his light through me. Amen.